3: On Wall Street, the two most dreaded words in the English language are long and term. You think money managers would be more threatened by phrases like regulatory oversight or tax increase, but our government is so pro-business that those things seem like fairy tales. Right now, long-term, is the last thing a big investor wants to hear. Sell, sell, sell. When you start talking about long-term earnings, the hedge fund guys will smile, they'll nod, and then they'll rush to sell your stock. When you look at today's action, Dow sinking 181 points, S&P losing 0.35%, percent Nasdaq inching up 0.08%. The long-term stories got crushed while the short-term plays. Companies delivering breathtaking numbers right now, like Bang saw their stocks soar. Now, no one ever admits that they hate long-term planning. That'd be sacrilegious. But this is a case where actions speak louder than words. Exhibit A, this morning, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, spoke to me about opening 50 new branches in the Philadelphia region, including some pretty hard-scrabble areas. He explained that these branches would lose money in their first year. But as you'll hear for yourself if you stay tuned for our interview later, Dimon's optimistic there'll be a payoff down the road. Traders hate hearing about Down the road, they want instant payback. So JP Morgan's stock dropped nearly 1%. However, the textbook example of Wall Street's aversion to long-term thinking is really the stock of Comcast, the parent company of this network, down 6% today. Why? Comcast won the bidding war for Sky, the huge European satellite TV company. And because many investors despise long-term investments, the stock had its worst day, in nearly three years. Granted, Comcast paid a pretty penny for Sky, $39 billion, prompting some analysts to downgrade the stock, including one of its former champions, Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson, who said the company grossly overpaid for Sky and the deal could not be justified. Ouch. But I think these bears have got it backwards. Long-term thinking is essential. Short-term thinking is dead end. Look, investing is a leap of faith. You either believe it or you don't. When it comes to Jamie Dimon, I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried. Well, leave him, and that's to quote Neil Dimon by way of the monkeys. J.P. Morgan came out of the Great Recession with the strongest balance sheet in the industry and the best global franchise. If Jamie Dimon says that inner-city Philadelphia is a good long-term investment, who am I to disagree? He's planting seeds in neighborhoods that are underbanked. As I drove away from the location of the new shoot. Uh, where we did the, the piece with Jamie Dimon, just a few blocks, by the way, from where my mom and dad went to school in a once-thriving neighborhood. All I saw were shuttered storefronts. The only thriving operation was a check-cashing business. Sounds like a community that could use a bank. We own J.P. Morgan for my charitable trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionWordsPlus.com club, and then I remain a steadfast buyer even here. How about the stock of Comcast? All right, this one's simple. I like Comcast because we've seen this movie before. They've done two gigantic deals over the years, buying ATT Broadband in July of 2001 and snapping up NBC Universal in October of 2009. Each time, the stock was shelled, falling about 7%, as the deals were viewed as too expensive and too risky. Hmm, 7%. Sound familiar? That's how much the stock of Comcast was down most of the day. That short-term verdict in those last two buys was overturned by long-term appeal, Comcast has gained 392% since the ATT deal closed, beating the S&P 500, which is up 349% over the same period. And it's up 425% since the NBC Universal deal was announced, crushing the 220% gain from the S&P. I think they've earned the benefit of the doubt. Comcast knows what it's doing. Just take a listen to what CEO Brian Roberts said to me when I interviewed him on opening day of NFL season in Philadelphia. Our job is to sort of not let that distract us from the mission at hand, which is to build value for the shareholders. I look at if you said to me, what are you most proud of? When my dad took Comcast public in 1972. If you bought 1000 shares, $7000, you'd have just about $12 million, 17% compounded return for 48 years. If you put it in the S&P 500, you'd have about 750,000, about 15 times less money. So we're looking for value opportunities, we're looking for strategic fits. And we have a management team that likes to build shareholder
4: value. And so sometimes when we have see something, we, by definition, you're the high bidder at that moment. It takes a little while to convince people. You've got to prove it.
3: Why don't people remember those things? Because this is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately business with a very short-term memory. In this case, there's also a pernicious storyline. Comcast doesn't like its current business because of cord cutting. In reality, Roberts told us directly that the cable business is enjoying a renaissance from new connectivity, technology initiatives, and a voracious desire for more bandwidth. This renaissance has given Comcast so much cash flow that the company can quickly pay down the massive amount of debt it's taking on to purchase Sky. And it is massive. In other words, this deal is much less risky, though, than the market seems to believe. More important, Comcast doesn't get much credit for all that bountiful cash flow currently, so why not do something else with it? The stock sells for less than 14 times next year's earnings. Just buying back stock, no one cares. This used to be regarded as a growth stock with a premium multiple. But once the Justice Department let it be known that Comcast would no longer be allowed to keep acquiring other ca- American cable companies, that's when they blocked the Time Warner cable deal. Well, it did fall out of favor, which brings us back to Sky. Here's the premier cable asset in Europe, with a footprint that effectively doubles Comcast's total households in a region that's growing much faster than in the U.S. Sky's got some fabulous assets, including the rights to the Premier League—that's European football, aka soccer, aka the most popular sport in the world. In short, Comcast was getting no respect from this stock market. It's a real Rodney Dangerfield stock. So they decided to get their growth groove back by making a deal that will let them expand fast and hard. Call me a buyer. Now, the average has drifted down all day, in part because our tit-for-tat tariffs with China are now reality. Jamie Dime reiterated to me that this is really a trade skirmish, not a trade war. Yet, a 10% tariff on $200 billion in goods comes to just $20 billion. And we're a $20 trillion economy. That said, he indicated that could change if things keep escalating. Whenever investors start worrying about a possible slowdown and money managers believe the tariffs could cause one, they dump the economically sensitive stocks and flock to the fast growers that don't need global trade. Trade, or of course, uh, trade specifically with China, or global growth in order to deliver good numbers. And that's why FANG, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet all had a mini resurgence today, bucking the prevailing downtrend. Oh, and by the way, the other FANG did even better. I'm talking about Diamondback Energy, which trades under the symbol FANG. This independent oil producer soared more than 3% as the whole cohort got a boost from rising oil prices. The last time Brent crude went above $80 a barrel, the experts were euphoric, and the price quickly collapsed. This time, there's no hoopla whatsoever, so I bet it keeps going higher. Bottom line, this market wants growth, but not every company can pivot to becoming a fang overnight. Some businesses take a long-term view, making big bets to improve their future prospects down the road. A diversified portfolio has room for both, even as the stock market often punishes long-term investments in the short run. However, when it comes to J.P. Morgan and Comcast, these companies know what they're doing. And I think their pullbacks are terrific buying opportunities in a ridiculously short-sighted market. Let's go to Joe in California. Joe. Hey, how are you doing, Jim? Great to be on your show. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show, Joe. What's going on? Oh, Just a beautiful day here yet again. There you
4: go. (laughs) Um, Listen, um, I'm a longtime shareholder in Alphabet and Facebook, but since before you called them Fang. And lots of negative news flow ah, in the last few months.
3: And I'm curious more about Congress. I think it's Congress looking into what I believe is
4: political bias. And I used to usually like to ignore um, being uh, political in my decisions when I invest. At what point do we need to pay attention here and worry about?
3: Okay, look, I'll tell you, Joe, because I'm not political, I'll tell you a pretty simple answer. You have to be uh, worried about it and cognizant when it starts costing these companies money. And that's why Facebook, I think, is business is slowing and expenses are going up. And that's why uh, for ActionAlertsPlus.com club members, I've been saying, whoa, let's lower that Facebook position because I think that their costs are going up for precisely what you just talked about. Jeff in Nevada, Jeff.
2: Jim. Jeff. Jeff from Las Vegas. Let me just tell you, first off, 25 years of mad respect for following you. Love what you do for the people.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. Always great to hear.
2: really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Well, the reason
2: I'm calling, we got Las Vegas stocks here, Las Vegas Sands, Wynn. I've been concerned about Wynn without the, the main man, Steve Wynn, captaining the ship. But now these tariffs, I want your insight on what the how these tariffs should play out for the casino stocks.
3: Well, I have to tell you that I share with you uh, what I say is uh, a genuine concern that Steve Wynn not there. Wynn can't be as creative or as well run because Steve Wynn, for all the issues that may, may have happened, was by far the best operator in the space. Uh, and so, therefore, I mean, we pulled back and been trying to recommend some of the domestic casino companies. We don't want to mess with Macau. We don't want to mess with anything having to do with China because this is even, look, I've got to tell you, skirmish, war, it doesn't matter. It's real bad for business. All right, remember that sometimes what you need is a dose of patience to see through the long term initiatives the companies are undertaking. They can't all be growth centric fang plays after all. I'm Money Tonight. My exclusive with JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon. I got the chance to sit down with the CEO in my hometown as the bank expands to filling. You're not going to want to miss this one. Then, is there still meat on the bone when it comes to investments in animal health? I'm eyeing the latest play in the space to take the tape. Now, I've got to tell you something. There's also a very special appearance by Adam Schefter, ESPN's most high-profile newsbreaker, with a terrific new book. So stick with Kramer.
1: Visibility at indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to indeed.com/slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire, you need indeed. When President
3: Trump signed the massive tax reform bill into law, Company after company told us they were paying workers one-time bonuses or boosting their dividends and stepping up their buybacks. Nothing wrong with any of that. You know, I like that, but it's not exactly ideal for the economy. However, a few companies decided to go in a different direction. Take J.P. Morgan, the world's largest bank. Sure, they continued to buy back stock, but you know what else they did with that extra cash? They announced a plan to invest $20 billion over five years in order to raise wages and expand their businesses, including new bank branches and more lending. Today, we learned some concrete details when J.P. Morgan announced a major expansion of its presence in the greater Philadelphia metro area. The bank's opening 50 new branches, committing to more than $3 billion in home and small business loans. As a native Philadelphian, this is the kind of thing I can't ignore. So earlier today, we checked in with Jamie Dimon, the chairman and CEO of JPMorgan Chase, and the longest serving chief of the major banks. If you were watching Squawk Alley this morning, you saw part of that conversation, but we had a lot more to talk about. So take a look. Jamie, you're chasing, you really got, you're tracing a picture, and I'm looking around this area, where banks can still make a difference. I'm so used to the squares, and I'm used to the fintech, and I'm used to thinking
2: bricks and mortar are dead. It's clearly not dead. No, a million people visit our branches every day. Even Even like the average millennial visit three times a quarter. And so, and then, we're, but we, but the branches change in size. They morph. They get smaller. The more dynamic ATMs do more. And then, when you walk in, there may be less people, more advisors, financial advisors, small business, mortgage advisors. And we're adding all the digital, P2P, real time. You invest. You can buy. If you're a good client, which you are, you Thank can you. buy and sell stocks for free now. Uh, we're going to give you self-directed investing, more financial education around FICO scores and how you can save money. And so. Yeah, we're doing all of it. Yeah, but
3: I'm yeah. talk about, look, I have yeah. an image of J.P. Morgan from, from the history books, okay? I have an image of it that it's the rich person's bank. You are talking about millennials. You're talking about neighbors yeah. like this. You're standing
2: on its head what J.P. Morgan yeah. is. Yeah. Well, J.P. Morgan name is really being used for global right. investment banking, private banking. Chase and the Old Bank One, those retail branches are, are nationwide, and they deal with 60 million households. Across the full spectrum, we do lower middle income households up to. Right. We have Chase Private Client. You may not remember we started that like eight years ago. There was one branch. Chase Private Client, which gives financial advice, right. is in almost four thousand branches today, That's big. and it's going okay. quite well. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Okay. So why could City not make it here? They spend fifty million dollars throughout this town, Philadelphia, and they closed. And the term they used, Jamie, was because it was unprofitable. Why should it be profitable for
2: you? Yeah, I again I don't know their issues, but we are very careful. We open fifty branches. Obviously they will lose money in the short run. But you know, we hope that not hope, I'm pretty sure, the only question is how long that you know after five, six years they're making million a million dollar year profit. Okay. okay, it takes a while. It's not like a McDonald's which can be making that kind of profit on day one, but that and then when we come in town, remember we we have credit cards, mortgages, right. auto, retail, those banks will serve local community organizations, they will serve Uh, private bank clients, small business clients. In fact, our average branch, something like 25% of the business, is the local small business guy who needs a branch down the street to drop off currency coin and do contracts, uh, uh, sign up merchant processing, et cetera.
3: Well, these are things that I think are integral to the comeback of a town. And yet at the same time, I remember Tony West, Associate Attorney General saying, Uh, About your settlement, we wanted to make sure that those who were responsible for conduct that contributed to the worst crisis since the Great Depression accounted for their actions. We want to be able to secure an acknowledgement of what happened by J.P. Morgan through a factual statement. For us, that statement of fact is as important as money, and they held you accountable for Bayer and for Washington Mutual. Where's the due process? There wasn't. None? No. Did they ever show you the thirteen billion? it was billion I,
2: here, two billion we, there? We, we'd they? asked my board had asked me about can we show it, and they didn't. So I, I I really don't know what happened. So I think the government one day should really look at that. And uh, you know, at the time people were so angry, legitimately, and we didn't cause the crisis. We didn't need the TARP, but they were mad. But I just prefer to look forward now. I mean, we grew right through that. We took care of our clients right through that. I don't agree with. A lot of things that Mr. West said, but that's, you know, life... I'll write my book about all that stuff. Okay? You're writing a book. I'm going to write one one day, yeah.
3: Now, to to ask you. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who your successor will be, but I don't see a Jamie Dimon sl- a slowing down at all.
2: No, I love what I do, and I, I just got back... You're the, the longest
3: year. serving of these the major yeah, bankers. I'm, I'm going to miss...
2: I'm, you know, and Lloyd and I are good friends, and uh, I'm going to miss Lloyd. I'll still, he'll still be a friend. I'll still see him, but... Um, no, the board and I announced, obviously, it's up to the board. Right. But I'll stay for five more years. But personally... And I'm speaking for the board. We believe that there are several people in the management who could do my job today. So I think they're going to have a choice that's very good and they can change it at will that we have a lot of good people in the pipeline who can do this job. They'll do it differently, uh, but hopefully we'll leave behind a great company and they can take it where they need to take the next five to 20 years. There are
3: a number of CEOs who've been thinking, well, obviously President Trump is the CEO, Uh, Bloomberg. Thinking once again, hat in the ring, Howard Schultz going back and forth. Is it a time for a CEO to run, say, I'm not sure what party (laughs) affiliation you have, maybe it's none, but a CEO from the banking community to run for president, or is it too soon after what happened?
2: Look, I've been wrong, because I I thought a billionaire in New York couldn't become president, and uh, President Trump did. I think it's probably too soon for a banker. Mike Bloomberg is not a banker. Mike Bloomberg was mayor of a city for 12 uh, years, did a great job. He's very smart. He's very knowledgeable. He'd get the best and the brightest. He has to make his own evaluation whether it makes sense for him to do it. But, uh, and CEOs might have the skills to do it, but it doesn't mean they have all the skills. I think political skills are real, right. and they develop it over time. And, and uh, you know, I think good policy, good administration, logic, facts, analysis, uh, cost-benefit stuff, that's not Democrat or Republican. So okay. I do think skills with a CEO could be very helpful in, in Washington. Uh, I think good policy has being Washington.
3: Jamie, it sounds like you really did genuinely evaluate whether you should run and whether you should f- wind up your term and then say, "Hey, listen, I'll explore it." Well,
2: have you explored it? I have not explored it. You have not thought about uh, it with friends, with bank, it, with it, anyone. It, it, friends have mentioned to me, and I, I thought about it. I haven't done any real official investigation or anything like but how that. But about an unofficial? And no, I mean uh, it was on my mind because people mentioned it, but it's not what I want to do. I don't think I would be good at it. I'm not a political person per se, so uh, I love what I but do. But you are tougher
3: and smarter than some of our politicians. No, I,
2: I shouldn't have said that.
3: You're, <laughs> that you're, that's kind of unequivocal. I, what
2: I, should have, I, I was joking around. What I, what I, should, I should focus on policy that matters. We have serious po- this we have the greatest country on the planet, but we have serious policy issues around infrastructure, we fix corporate taxation. Right proper regulation, inner city schools, development of neighborhoods, affordable housing, the opioid crisis, getting people back to work. Uh, income inequality needs to be fixed. But, but, and, yeah, but the politicians seem to, in
3: your view, politicians have let us down or let these people down. And bankers have to take up the slack because we're in a new country and a new economy. We're the, we're the capitalists. Yeah. And this is something our friend Ken Langone would say, yeah. that the capitalists have to step up
2: because the politicians failed us. I, I think business has to step up. Because business has, remember, 85% of people work for business. If we don't have the strongest economy on the planet, we won't have the strongest military on the planet. If we don't have the strongest economy, we won't have jobs, wages, or any of that, or innovation. That we need. Then you've got to figure out how to solve the problems. Okay. So some of the things that you need to do in government is just set the, the, the highway sidelines so that it works well. And then you still may have problems that need to be fixed after that, like, like income inequality. So, I do think we need to work more on in earned income tax credits, uh, maybe a, a negative income tax to help lower paid have a living wage. So, those are policy issues that are eventually washing up the face. And that's why you see all this populism today, too, because right. people are saying, well, it worked for the big companies, but it didn't work for us. And there's some truth to that. There's oh, segments that it didn't work for, and I think. Business working with government and and civic society. Because you need people on the ground, local right. not for products, can fix these issues that government can't alone do and business can't alone do. All right,
3: last question. Uh, the city of brotherly love welcomes you. Uh, what do you think is going to be right just in these, just say, 50 blocks? What will it look like, or what do you want it to look like when you come back five years from now?
2: So we'll hopefully more affordable housing, hopefully a, a Chase branch or two down here, more uh, small businesses, a couple of. Uh, a couple of schools, graduating kids who are going to be getting jobs. Uh, th- that's what you want. And, and gentrification is always is always a possibility. But if you, do, if you do affordable housing right and jobs right, you can avoid some of the gentrification.
3: Well, thank you so much, Jamie hey, sure. oh, hey. Chairman and CEO,
2: Jamie Dimes. Always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,
3: The thing you need to understand about the stock market is that it's not always very bright. Money managers generally aren't too thrilled about owning the stock of big, complicated companies with lots of moving parts. They'd much rather be spoon-fed smaller, more bite-sized businesses that are easy to get your head around. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of breakups. When a company spins off part of its business as a separate entity, they're giving Wall Street exactly what it wants. A good breakup can give you some tremendous outperformance versus the rest of the market. I know this can sound like pure alchemy. I mean, they're just creating value out of thin air with a stroke of a pen. But that is how the business works. So we're always on the lookout for breakups that might fit the mold. And tonight we've got a new one. It's called Elonco Animal Health, which trades under the symbol ELON. Hey, who doesn't want a little Elon? Last week, Eli Lilly spun out ElonCo, its veterinary business, via an initial public offering on Thursday, and the stock spiked 50% on that first day. It pulled over $24 to $36. Investors lapped it up. And look, on the surface, I mean, I get it. I get it. It makes sense. ElonCo seems exactly like the kind of stock that Wall Street adores. For years now, you know, I've been pushing the thesis about the humanization of pets. As we treat our companion animals more like members of the family here in America, we spend a lot more money keeping them healthy. Owning a dog is just like having a kid, except dogs sometimes obey your commands. They never hit you up for money, and nobody ever gives you funny looks when you tell them that you want to get your dog neutered. All right, when I was younger, if your pet got sick, there was a really good chance that your parents would just take it to a nice farm in the country, never be seen again. These days, people shell out fortunes keeping their companion animals alive. Right now, our puggle, AMD, a.k.a. Bug, is really sick. They say he has a slipped disc, and we are pulling out all the stops to get him better, including a cocktail of very expensive drugs with no insurance, no copay. Just plain old cash. We don't care. Whatever it takes. That's why we created a whole humanization of pets index right here a month ago. And it's why stocks like Idex, the maker of veterinary diagnostic equipment, have been such terrific long-term performers. On top of that, we've got precedent for the IPO like Alonco. In 2013, another big pharma company, Pfizer, spun out its own animal health division. It was called Zoetis. And even if you don't count the initial spike, that stock's given us a monster 189% gain from where it closed on the first day of trading. That's double the return from the S&P 500 of the same period, and we've been behind this thing the whole way. So, could Alanco be the next Zoetis? Let's play Know Your IPO to find out. First of all, Alanco is a drug company. They're the number one maker of medicinal feed additives. They're a major developer of vaccines and anti-parasite drugs, and they also have some treatments for osteoarthritis, uh, ear infections, and other common pet problems. However, is more about livestock than pets. About 63% of its sales are related to food, animals. So really, it's a play on the growing demand for protein worldwide. Less a story about loving our cats and dogs, and more about how we love to eat chicken and fish, particularly as CEO Jeff Simmons told me, salmon. So why does Eli Lilly spin off a business like this? The company started mulling over the idea about a year ago, and after conducting a months-long strategic review, they decided an IPO would be the best way to unlock value. Back in 2015, Lilly bought Novartis's animal health business for five billion dollars, and Alanco now finished digesting that acquisition. But this division was never going to get the valuation deserved as long as it was buried within a massive 105 billion dollar drug company. Now that Alanco is an independent entity, at least theoretically, because in practice, Eli Lilly still owns 80 percent of the stock. They're focused on investing heavily in their fastest growing categories. Three quarters of the company's R&D budget is going to companion animal disease prevention, companion animals therapeutics, and what they call the future protein business, meaning yummy chicken and fish. In theory, I like how this company looks. But what about in practice? Getting a read on the actual numbers here is a little rough. Because Alanco's financials are hopelessly entangled with Eli Lilly's. In the prospectus, they flat out tell you that, and I quote, it is impractical to estimate what our standalone costs would have been for the historical periods presented, end quote. I found that baffling. I mean, but with that caveat in mind, the numbers don't look that great. Alanco's sales have pretty much been flat for the past three years, which is surprising for a company that's got exposure to both the humanization of pets and the world's voracious appetite for protein. In comparison, Zoetis has high single-digit sales growth, and IDEX has consistently delivered low double-digit growth. All right, how about earnings? When you look at the gap numbers, so to speak, Elanco's been losing money for the last three years. On an adjusted basis, they're profitable, but even those adjusted metrics have been all over the place. But investing is all about the future, not the past. So how do things look for Elanco going forward? I got to tell you, while I like that they're investing in companion animals and the fish and poultry segment of the livestock business, well, that's also a little worrisome. Why? Because the one area that Alanco doesn't call out as a growth category is actually their largest business, ruminants and swine. Think pigs, cows, goats, sheep. That division accounts for 41% of their sales last year. It sounds like even Alanco is not exactly enamored of their core business. So where do I come down on this one? Given that Alonco surged 50% on its first day of trading and it's pulled back just a hair over a dollar since then, I think it all comes down to valuation. I like that this veterinary drug company is doubling down on the humanization of pets. And I would absolutely be a a buyer, no doubt about it, if it came down the right level. So what is the right level? Okay, before we talk about valuation, I need to reiterate that these are all back-of-the-envelope calculations. We're still in the quiet period following the IPO, meaning analysts who work for the investment banks that took Alanco Public can't comment on it for another four weeks. Normally, when we value stocks, we look at the consensus earnings estimates, but there's no consensus here because there's no coverage. However, if we double Alonco's pro forma earnings from the first half of the year to get an annual number, the stock's selling for about 36 times this year's earnings. Again, very rough calculation. Even so, if, if it's even a little accurate, Alonco is more expensive than Zewettis. That's puzzling. Uh, Zotus trades at less than 29 times earnings, and it's much cheaper, though, than Idex at almost 57 times earnings. But of course, Idex deserves that valuation because it's got rapid growth. I don't think that the Alanco valuation can really be justified unless the company's stagnant revenue growth really starts picking up here. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe once the analysts start rolling out coverage next month, they'll see something I didn't see, give the company much higher earnings estimates, make its stock look a heck of a lot cheaper. It's possible. But there's something else that worries me here. Louis still owns 80% of Alonco, and they're eventually going to distribute that stock to their own shareholders. When that happens uh, early next year, well, it could create some uh, real volatility that you've got to be ready for. So here's the bottom line. As much as I like corporate breakups and humanization of pets and and the rising popularity of chicken and other proteins, I can't recommend Alonco Health right here uh, versus, say, Zoetis for value or Idex for growth. I think this could be a very intriguing story, but not until the stock goes lower or we get more reason to believe that the growth is accelerating. For now, I suggest you stay on the sidelines or visit our faves for the best risks and rewards. Let's go to Tina in Tennessee. Tina.
1: Hey, Jim. First, I wanted to say, you know, how at the beginning of the show, you say you're not trying to make friends. That's true. Well, I think if you did a tour you could fill all the US stadiums with all the friends you've made because of all the money you've made us. Oh, th-
3: thank you. Thank you so much. Sometimes the, the, the job you, is hard. I, I wish really
1: appreciate you would. it. Thank you. I, I- I wish you would. Thank you so much. Um, I'm looking to um, add a pet stock to my portfolio. And I know that pet healthcare is hot. Yes. Um, I've been looking at Pet IQ. And I saw today that they're doing a public offering of common stock. And I also saw that they hired a new president, um, Susan Soltis, who I'm not familiar with. But I'm just wondering what you think about this as, a, as an addition to my portfolio.
3: Well, I, I do like the company very much. That's not that big a uh, underwriting. It could uh, be prevent, It could pre- give you actually an opportunity to get into a very high quality, high growth uh, company. So I'm certainly uh, going to endorse it. Uh, if you can get it on the equity offering, I think that's a real good place. And I thank you for those kind words, which mean the word to me, world to me, Tina. I mean, really mean the world to me right now. All right. There's a lot to like about the story surrounding Lanco Animal Health. But I think it's in need of a pullback. And uh, I'd also like to see concrete signs of growth acceleration. I wait this one out for now. Now there's much more man money ahead. I'm sitting down with ESPN's Adam Schefter to find out more about the man behind the suit and tie, rattling off than just rattling off NFL reports. Then companies bought back $189 billion of their own shares in the first quarter of this year. Does that make their earnings? phony don't make a move before you hear my take it's different from all the rest and all your calls are rocket fire tonight's edition of the lightning round so stick with kramer i don't say this enough but some things are more important than money Things like family. Last week, I got a chance to speak with ESPN's Adam Schefter, perhaps the best sports reporter around, especially during football season. Normally, I'd go about my fantasy team, but this time we had a much more serious conversation. Adam's just written a great book. It's called The Man I Never Met, which is a reference to his wife's previous husband who lost his life in the World Trade Center on September 11th. It's a fascinating and deeply relevant story, so take it. Adam, we all know you as probably the great sports reporter (laughs) of our era. Thank you, Jim. What we didn't know you is uh, that you're a diarist and that you're a uh, very sober reflector upon what happened on 9-11. The Man I Never Met, which is a book that was the most sobering I've read in a long time, seems out of character with the man we see on ESPN.
4: Explain who you are. Explain who Joe Mayo is. Well, I think that people sometimes confuse people with their professional personas. I know you are so closely associated with money, and that is a part of your identity, but you were a brilliant man, and there were so many things about so many different aspects of life. And in this particular case, this is a story that initially ran on ESPN on the 15th anniversary of 9-11. It was a tribute to my wife's late husband who perished that day. It was a way to honor his memory, and it was a way to salute my wife for the toughness and bravery that she showed after 9-11 raising a 15-month-old son on her own. They had just moved out to a house on Long Island a month before. They were in that house when 9-11 happened, and her life was basically, had a wrecking ball taken to it. So this book is a way to honor Joe's memory, to give his son a chance to better know his father, his biological father, and for everybody to get to know the great Joe Mayo, and this was a great man, Jim.
3: Uh, I want to talk about Joe because I knew Canner, and I know people who did business with Joe, and I didn't ever told you this, but he was a larger-than-life figure who scratched a business together out of personality. Uh, You never met him, but you did get to find out who he is and tell other people about him in this
4: book. Well, Joe is somebody who, oddly enough, fascinates me, and I can't imagine that there are very many people who have ever written a book about their spouse's first spouse. Certainly not in a flattering way. But Joe is somebody who passed away, lost his life at the age of 32. At
3: Canner, where he was a hitter.
4: A big hitter, and was enormously successful, and had a huge future ahead of him, and had his life snuffed out for him before it began. And he took the ferry into work that day, and it's documented in the book and it's the sliding doors of life, because that day in the afternoon, he had to be in Connecticut. And he weighed the decision, what should he do? Should he go straight to Connecticut? Should he go into the office in the morning and ultimately decide to take the ferry to lower Manhattan, to the World Trade Center, and we know what happened that day. But he was an incredible man. He was revered, respected, charismatic, charming, great character, handsome, everything that you'd want and a man, everything that you want your daughter to marry. And again, the tragedy that happened that day snuffed at his life.
3: A lot of this book is about the, I feel, the attempt to get on past September 12th. And how hard September 12th was mm-hmm. for people. And how much you played a role in your fabulous wife's renaissance. But at the same time, it's never going to change. It's still always going to be a
4: part of September 12th. 9-11 is there every single day and I know we commemorate every year and I know my wife feels like it should be done more often people our country remembers all the victims and all the tragedies that happened to so many people of thousands of people here on the East Coast but that's something where this story represents not only a tribute to Joe and to Sherry, my wife but a sign that life does go on that there is hope after grief that there is there are heartwarming stories that come out of heartbreak. And that is a big part of this book. And I think that's part of why the piece that initially ran on ESPN on the 15th anniversary, it resonated so much with so many people, it touched them, moved them, and inspired them. And that led to the book, because that six-and-a-half-minute television story turned into a 200-page, much more detailed, much more personal book.
3: Last question. How about the irony? We all know you as the fantasy football guru fantasy (laughs) this is more than reality is a tough read adam and not because it's not you you're a bad writer it's tough because it's so the opposite of fantasy
4: well you know what it is it's life and my wife shari says all the time that everybody's got something so these are our somethings here to see and it goes to show you that life is not some instagram post that we see every day where everything is great and joyous and happy all the time. We have a lot of happiness in our life. We all do. But there's some sadness and there's some reality as well.
3: Yeah, and this is how people are remembered. And when people stop talking about a person's name, that's when they disappear.
4: Well, Joe's not going to disappear.
3: Excellent. Okay, that's Adam Schefter, ESPN analyst and author of The Man I Never Met, which is a must-read but also a sad must-read with hope at the end. Yeah, money's back here for the break. Thanks, Jim. It is time. It's over the light room And then the light round's over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the Light Round Clear. Let's start with Joyce in California. Joyce! Hey Jim, how are you? I am good, Joyce. How about you? I'm great. So I want to know about Bluebird Blue. What do you think? No, I like the Cartoon. Remember, these are all spec plays, but I like it very much. And I've got to tell you, uh, all of the biotechs look a little better. I like Gilead Two right here. I'm calling a little bottom. Let's go to Joel in Pennsylvania. Joel. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Hey, Jim. Uh, my stock is Total, Simple, simple T-O-T. Total is a winner in this environment with oil going up and not stuck in the Permian. I say yes. Let's go to Allen in Nevada. Alan. Happy Monday to you, Jimbo from Sin City, Lost Wages, Nevada. Lost Wages? I like Lost Wages. How can I help? you? Well, hey, Jim, I know you're high on the retail segment of the market yes. and you're, you're not high on the pot stocks, no pun intended. You were talking last week about van shoes. What about the shoe company Crocs, symbol C R O X? has no sourcing in China has those yet. How do you, how does it look? You? I have not looked at Crocs in years. I've got to come back and that'll be fun. That'll be fun to look at because I used to like it a lot. That a couple of shortfalls. Let me do some homework. Let's go to Georgia in Florida. Georgia, Florida.
1: Hey, Jim. It's nice of you to take my call. What of course, do you Georgia. Think of still- uh,
3: or Silica Holdings, SL No, no, I don't like the fracking-related <laughs> stocks. I think that that business is slowing, so let's be very careful. I need to go to Rocco in Pennsylvania. Rocco.
5: Hey, Jim, how you doing? I am
3: doing well. How about
5: you? I'm doing well. Um, I'm just curious about the, what your input is on the new on Newcore Steel Company. Okay,
3: Nucor, I've been telling you members of the Plus.com club that I'm being patient with Nucor. I think they should have had a better when they gave you that outlook recently. It was disappointing. They've got to stop having one-time problems or we're going to have to change our view. Let's go to Chris in Florida. Chris. Hey, Kramer. Booyah from West Palm Beach, baby. Man, I wish I were there. I'm- What's going on?
1: Well, I have international paper, like you told me to, you know, a little while ago. But I'm thinking a little bit in the future, like, you know, Plastic straws and plastic going down. I know, and it you know. makes tons
3: of sense. But I've got to tell you, it's not translated to earnings. Why? Because people feel there's too much capacity coming on. A lot of times when you can't see the capacity coming on, like with Micron, that's what happened to Micron stock, which you know I think is bottom. You end up being in a situation where you say, wow, what is the hidden problem here? It's capacity. Let's go to Tom in Illinois. Tom. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I am good. How about you, Tom? Good. I'm just uh, calling to see what you think and what your opinion is on Nokia. Nokia, I don't have a catalyst. I don't know why I should recommend it other than a 4% yield. And frankly, that's not enough to pull the trigger for. Let's go to LT in Washington, D.C. LT. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah. LT from D.C. The uh, the ticker I'm inquiring about today is BABA Baba. Well, I happen to like Baba, but I do not like China, and I'm going to stay away as long as we continue have this trade skirmish. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
5: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: You know I'm an excitable guy, but nothing gets me outraged. Like journalists who assume that ordinary investors Home gamers like you are too dumb to understand the workings of the stock market. That's my take every time I read another story bemoaning the fact that buybacks artificially inflate a company's earnings per share, making them inherently phony. Today, the Wall Street Journal reported that companies repurchased $189 billion of their own shares in the first quarter. And that number might have even grown bigger in the second quarter. That is a huge increase from the $137 billion in buybacks we saw on average in the six quarters before President Trump's tax reform. Then they give you the usual litany of companies that pumped up their earnings with buybacks. Yeah, Union Pacific, Southwest, of course, Apple, among so many others. But I got to tell you, this whole line of reasoning really misses the point. Look, when companies first started doing buybacks, they were novel enough that many fund managers didn't actually recognize their power. They reacted positively to each earnings beat that was created purely by a buyback shrinking the number of shares. The denominator. But over time, money managers got wise to this whole game. Now, every time you get a buyback-engineered upside surprise, it's pretty much universally called out as being manufactured. More importantly, while the earnings growth that buybacks create may be dubious, they do have a real impact on the stock market as a whole. Remember, markets are all about supply and demand. Buybacks do a terrific job of sopping up that supply. Now, we already have a seemingly endless wave of savings coming into the S&P 500. This tide of new money has not been slowed by higher valuations. It hasn't been slowed by rising interest rates. It hasn't been slowed by tariffs. It hasn't been slowed by baby boomers hitting retirement age. The money coming into the market via index funds has defied every prediction of doom and gloom. The experts tell us that there will come a time when we have more money coming out of the market than coming in. But that sure hasn't happened yet. Why does this matter? Because there's only so much supply of stock to go around. And this voracious demand keeps pushing us higher. Layer in the mergers and acquisitions of the S&P 500 and the lack of new equity issuance by companies in that index and the misunderstood buybacks. And you've got the makings of a genuine stock shortage. Buybacks and acquisitions take out a tremendous number of shares. These days, we have far more net curtailers than net Issuers. And because there's so much cash flooding into the market, especially since the tax cuts, you're dealing with an extraordinary situation where the S&P 500 index funds, which don't sell shares as long as they keep getting money in, act as if they're stock buybacks, too. Take a look at the major holders of large capitalization companies, and you'll see the same top shareholders time and again. It's State Street, BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity. They own these stocks for their index funds and ETFs. So often, I see them owning 20% of the shares outstanding in companies big and small. And many of those companies also have colossal stock buybacks. Remember, the index funds don't care how a company arrived at its earnings per share. Heck, they don't even really care about the earnings, period. The only thing that matters to them is whether or not your stock is in the S&P 500 index. This buy-road buying creates a major imbalance between the supply of stock out there and the demand for it. That's where the stock shortage comes from, and buybacks exacerbate it. This is basic economics 101. When something's in short supply, the price tends to go up. So, yes, buybacks do artificially inflate a company's earnings per share growth year over year, Stipulated myself. But these days, hardly any investors are being fooled by, say, Oracle, which repurchased 5% of its shares this quarter, or Signet, which bought back 16%. The only people being fooled are the journalists and pundits who don't understand the power of these buybacks to bolster share prices overall in a world where stocks are already in short supply thanks to the endless buying of the index funds. Stick with Kramer. It's always encouraging to talk to Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, because he's professionally positive, and I think that it's worthy to listen to a guy who's just positive, plain and simple. Now, speaking of positive, we're heading out west. We're going to Dreamforce and to speak to a lot of other CEOs. We'll have Drew Halston. We'll have Mark Benioff, of course, who's behind Dreamforce. Kevin Mandia from FireEye. And then all week, we've got a lot of tech executives just trying to find out what's really going on in investing in America. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim
5: Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. The earnings are relentless. But Kramer has burned the midnight oil, and he's ready to run the gauntlet. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,